Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with Amy Purdy. I actually connected with Amy over a decade ago when I was working as a producer for Oprah. We spoke for about an hour on the phone, and it was one of those conversations that always stuck with me. I always had this vision of reconnecting with Amy at some point and playing a part in sharing her story. A few weeks ago, I got to do just that, and now I get to share it with you. After college, Amy was working as a massage therapist in Las Vegas when she came down with a rare form of meningitis. The illness ravaged her body, leaving her in a coma where she had a near-death experience and walking out of the hospital, a double amputee, when both of her legs were cut off below the knee. From the get-go, she decided that this setback and her new body would do nothing to get in the way of pursuing her dream of becoming a professional snowboarder. After learning to stand, then step and walk, Amy strapped on her board and returned to the mountains she loved. She would go on to become a world-famous Paralympic snowboarder. She also learned to dance beautifully in front of a small crowd of millions on Dancing with the Stars. Most importantly, she decided to share her story with the hopes of inspiring others. Amy was a jet setter, speaking on stages around the world and going back to where we started, touring with Oprah Winfrey. She was in peak physical performance and living her best life when she developed a blood clot and was told she'd be lucky if she could walk to the end of her driveway. This was about a year ago, and she has spent the last year essentially quarantined and healing her body, and in true Amy fashion, not taking no for an answer. This past year has taught her a lot about slowing down self-compassion and digging deep to find the same perseverance and optimism she discovered 20 years ago. I've heard Amy speak over the years and followed her on social media, and I can say that she has never been more raw, vulnerable, and honest about her fascinating life story. Here's today's interview with the unstoppable Amy Purdy. Hi, Amy. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Good. Doing good. Welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you so much, Kimmy. I'm really excited to be here. Amy, tell me about the backdrop of your childhood. Gosh, so I grew up in Las Vegas, and I was always very adventurous. I loved the outdoors, and I just loved life. I remember telling my parents, I love life. Like, I just love life. I love being alive and trying new things and learning new things. I loved school. I was a little bit of an introvert. I was not athletic. I didn't play any sports at all. And something happened that changed your life forever when you were 19. For those listeners who aren't familiar with your story, share that with us. What happened to you when you were 19? Yeah. So just to kind of set it up a little bit, I ended up falling in love with snowboarding, trying it for the first time in high school. My plan was to travel the world and snowboard after high school. And so I became a massage therapist because I thought with this job, all I needed were my hands on my massage table by my side and I could go anywhere. So I had this job that I loved. I ended up working in Vegas again, 
because I moved away for school and then I went back to work at a spa. I loved my job. I loved the work I did. I was saving up money so I could travel the world and snowboard. And all of a sudden, just in one day, my life took a detour when I went to work and the day started out normal. I felt fine. And as the day went on, I started to realize that my energy level really continued to fade. And I, I remember massaging this guy and, and just thinking, gosh, this guy is absolutely draining me. Why am I so exhausted right now? And that night I had a temperature of 101. And that's typical flu-like symptoms. And then the next morning, my temperature actually broke and my family went out of town and I was like, I'm probably fine. I'll just meet up with you guys later. My family did this family vacation. But that afternoon, instead of feeling better, I actually started to feel worse. And I remember my mom calling to check on me and and just saying, God, mom, I feel like I'm dying. And she was like, well, you're probably a little dehydrated. Get to the hospital if you need to. And when we got off the phone, I closed my eyes and I fell asleep. And not long after closing my eyes, I felt this strong urge to wake up. But when I tried to open my eyes, I couldn't. Over and over, I forced myself awake. And then finally, I fell into the deepest sleep I have ever felt. And suddenly, I heard this voice say, Amy, get up and look in the mirror. And this voice was so startling that I immediately opened my eyes and I looked around. I didn't see anybody there. And as I was sitting up, I started to realize something was really wrong. My heart was beating out of my chest. I was so weak. I was so shaky. It probably took a good three to five minutes to get into a seated position. And so I scooted to the edge of the bed and I put my feet on the floor and I stood up and I realized that I couldn't feel my feet. And when I kind of looked at my reflection in the mirror, I saw that my nose was purple. I saw that my chin was purple. I saw that my cheeks were purple. I glanced at my hands. I saw that my hands were purple. And in that moment, I knew that I was dying. Luckily, my cousin had come in to just check on me. My mom called her and she looked at me and she said, oh my God, Amy, it looks like you're dead. And I said, I'm dying. I'm dying. I know I am. I have to get to the hospital right now. So she rushed me to the hospital and that was the beginning of this amazing and and crazy journey. I fought for my life. I ended up losing both of my legs below the knees. And at first we didn't know what this was. I was in septic shock and it took five days for my blood work to come back and and show that I had something called meningococcal meningitis, which is a blood infection, a little bacteria that floats around that some people are carriers that don't know they have it. And suddenly I got it. My immune system didn't fight it off. And it was, it was incredibly deadly. And you had a premonition, right? You know, I had, I did, I did. It's funny. I haven't really talked about this a lot. So before all of this happened, I would say it was maybe three weeks before all of this hit. And I finished up my normal massage day. And as I was walking out to my car, which was really far, by the way, from the, I worked in a casino in Vegas in a spa. So I was in this, you know, I was in a garage that was so far away from the casino and I was, I was getting to my car and my manager called me and said, Amy, is there any way you can come back? Because there's actually this guy that's been sitting in the lobby that somehow we forgot about and we don't have a massage therapist for. So can you come back and massage him? And so I went back and I loved my job. So I had no issue with that at all. He was an older man. I mean, he was probably in his seventies. He had dark skin. I remember he had just really, really sweet eyes and I brought him in to do this massage. And I knew the minute I put my hands on him, that there was just this connection. And being a massage therapist, like sometimes you feel connected and sometimes you feel disconnected and you can really like share energy. You can feel what this person's been going through, or if they're really stressed out, of course, you can feel that stress as well. So I don't know. I just, I put my hands on him and suddenly we were just in this different world. And I was so in the moment and just thoroughly enjoyed this massage with him. And he was talking to me. And and a few minutes after I started massaging him, he asked me a question and he said, Amy, 
have you crossed over yet? And I said, I don't know, but I kind of know what you mean. And so let me explain that. It it actually kind of brought tears to my eyes. It did. It choked me up when he asked me that because leading up to this point, I had always had this feeling that something was going to happen in my life. In fact, I've got it written down in a journal where I felt like something is going to happen in my life. I don't know if it's good or bad, but it was almost like this weird anticipation that I could feel just leading up to where I was at. And so when this man asked me if I had crossed over yet, I instantly kind of related it to that feeling that I had. And I said, no, but I think I know what you're talking about. And he said, well, let me tell you a story. And he told me the story of how when he was a kid that he died. I believe he fell down a well and he drowned and he stopped breathing, but then somebody found him and was able to save him. His whole perspective changed. And he said, I crossed over when I was a kid. And he said, I feel like the same thing is going to happen to you. And the rest of this massage, I was crying and just kind of in shock because this man was speaking to my heart and was speaking, I think, to my soul. (laughs) And he said, when this happens, when you cross over, don't be scared. You're going to go on to do amazing things with your life. That chokes me up. (laughs) He said, you're going to go on to do amazing things with your life. And so three weeks later, when I was in the emergency room, And the doctors were panicking and freaking out and saying that I was going into cardiac arrest and that I needed to be on life support. I actually heard the nurse call my parents and say, we don't know what she has, but she's got maybe two hours left to live. We're giving her less than a 2% chance of living because I was in massive septic shock at that point. And I remember thinking, no, I'm not going to die. This is exactly what this man was talking about, that I'm going to go on and do amazing things with my life. And I did. (laughs) It's unbelievable to listen to that and think of that foreshadowing and connection that you had with him. So the prognosis is 2% that you will live. I want you to walk us through the near-death experience that you did in fact have and what you remember about that. Yeah, so when I entered the hospital, I was in septic shock. When they checked my blood, they could tell that I had a massive blood infection. They didn't know what the bacteria was or the cause of it, but I think normally your white blood count is somewhere between five and 10,000, and mine was above 100,000. They knew that my body was majorly being taken over by an infection. And they didn't think I'd survive the night. So my parents were a couple hours away. By the time they got there that night, I was hooked up to machines. They had pumped me full of 50 pounds of water to keep pressure in my veins. I did not look like myself. And my feet were ice cold and starting to turn purple. And they had my family pray and and just basically said, you need to say your last you know, goodbyes because we don't think she's going to make it through the night. And I did make it through the night. The next day, I remember my whole family being around me and praying for me. They brought in a priest and they brought in actually like a pastor and a priest and and different people from different religions. And they were all in there with their hands on my forehead praying for me. I also remember that my feet were so cold that I kept asking my dad, if he could show me my feet because I wanted to see what was going on. And my dad kept saying, your feet are the the least of our worries right now. And I, I said, I want to see my feet. So my dad lifted the sheets and I saw that my feet were purple. And so that was my last memory. They put me into an induced coma because I was so unstable. And so there was a nurse that was sitting by my bed doing 24-hour dialysis, which is my kidneys had failed as well. And this machine that she was using was literally keeping me alive. And she was tediously sitting there for days, just moving these different dials up and down. So every time my blood pressure would shoot up, she'd have to move something. And every time my heart rate would crash, she'd have to move something. And multiple times they came in with the crash cart because my heart would be beating so fast it would beat out of rhythm. And so I don't remember, of course, 
all of that. That's kind of what my family shared with me. But I do remember parts of being in a coma. They told my parents at this point, they had no idea if I was going to survive. I was already, you know, on the edge of death. And then here they were bringing me into emergency CAT scan. And what they saw was that my spleen was three times its normal size. So if it hadn't already burst, it was about ready to. And so they rushed me into emergency surgery. And I remember being in that surgery, even though I was in a coma, you know, even though I was fully sedated, I remember being in that surgery, but I thought I was in heart surgery because I could feel my heart beating so fast and I could hear my doctor next to me talking to me. And I remember at one point he said, whatever it is you believe in, Amy, think about that right now. And I remember just thinking, I believe in love. I believe in love. Like that makes the world go around. That creates everything. I believe in love. And so I remember feeling him cut me open and it didn't hurt. It was just this sensation. And I was very aware of what he was doing. I felt him cut me from my sternum down to my belly button. And I I thought I was in heart surgery as well because my aunt had a similar scar and she had heart surgery when she was a kid. And so I thought he must be here to help my heart. And I remember just feeling my heart beating so fast and so hard. And then all of a sudden I felt my last heartbeat and it took my breath away. And I suddenly found myself in this space And I knew what happened. I had died. I had flatlined. And I found myself in this space and I saw these three silhouettes in front of me and I couldn't recognize them, but I could see their hands kind of moving in this come here motion. And they were saying to me, you can come with us or you can go. And I got so mad and so frustrated And I thought, no, like every bit of energy in my body. I was like, no, I'm not going anywhere. And I thought, I haven't even lived my life yet. I'm 19 years old. I haven't fallen in love yet. I haven't done the things I want to do yet. And I started to think about the things that I love about life. And I thought about the smell of a campfire. I thought about the sound of ocean waves And I thought about the taste of hose water (laughs) when you're a kid. And I thought, no, I can't let this go. I'm not ready to go. These are the things I love about life. And right then, I had this kind of bright light sitting over my shoulder that, that was saying to me, like, life is a journey and you're going to have all these ups and all these downs. But just know that it will all make sense in the end. It will all make sense in the end. And so as I woke up from this coma, that was something I was trying to communicate to my family. And I remember I had tubes down my throat and and I was trying to tell them. So I chose to be here. I had a choice and I chose to be here. And I was trying to move my mouth and tell them, but I couldn't because I had these tubes down my throat. In fact, I remember my mom asking a nurse, why is she doing that with her mouth? And the nurse said, oh, patients try to do that to get the respirator out. But I remember thinking, no, I'm trying to tell you guys something. And so a few days passed and I still continued to do that. My mom figured out that I was trying to say something. So she gave me a piece of paper and a pen And my arm was so weak because I had been in a coma for a couple weeks at that point. I could barely move my arm. And and I wrote, I had a choice and I chose to be here. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting sharing the story again. It's been a while since I shared it. So thank you. (laughs) Eventually, you shared asking to look at your feet before and having that be one of your last memories before going into the coma and the NDE. Eventually, the doctors would tell you that your legs would be amputated below the knee. How did you experience those words? (laughs) So, gosh, it's really interesting to kind of share this 
perspective, I guess, because you would think that I would have been just traumatized and terrified. And I was, I was. But by the time I knew my feet had to be amputated, I was ready for it. And we had done everything that we could to try to save to save my legs. It's basically like mid-calf down. They had physical therapists in there every day. At this point, my feet were black. The soles of my feet completely black. My toes were completely black. I was so tired of people touching me. I mean, I couldn't be touched again you know, ripping tape off of me every day. They would move needles around and rip tape off. I was tired of people feeling sorry for me. And I remember saying, okay, let's do it. I'm ready to move on with my life. And I was terrified. I had no idea what to expect. I had never seen an amputee before, literally. I mean, actually, if I had seen one, the only vision I had in my mind was a wounded veteran sitting in a wheelchair, you know, on a corner begging for food or something. Like that's literally my vision of somebody with no legs. That's all I knew. But I also knew that I was ready to move on with my life. And this was a couple of weeks after I entered the hospital. I think this was about five weeks after I entered the hospital. And I remember being wheeled into the operating room and being so scared and so, you know, uncertain of what the rest of my life was going to look like. So I gave myself these three goals. And I think I put these into place because I needed something to pull me through. And the first goal was that I wasn't going to feel sorry for myself, that I wasn't a victim. I refused to be a victim and I'm not going to act like one. And the second was that I was going to snowboard that season because I had never missed a season of snowboarding and I wasn't about to, so I'd figure out a way. And then the third was when I figured all of this out, I wanted to somehow help other people and just let other people know that whatever it is they're facing, whatever circumstances they're facing, that it's all going to be okay and it's all going to make sense in the end and and we can get through this. And I knew that in my heart before even going into that surgery. I didn't know how. I didn't know what the outcome was going to be like. But I could feel in my heart that when I figured this out, I wanted to be able to help others do the same. How long were you in the hospital? Maybe six, seven weeks I was in the hospital. You also needed a kidney transplant. And your father gave you his kidney. From what you've shared about your father, I love him. (laughs) He's great. There was also a beautiful story you shared as you were released from the hospital about walking with your father at a special occasion. And this was, I believe, one of the first times that you walked. Can you share that story? My sister was getting married very close to the date that I left the hospital. I got home about two weeks before her wedding. And so there was a night where I had just gotten my legs that day. My legs were so uncomfortable. I mean, that day was, I think, just mentally exhausting. I ended up sleeping for hours because I couldn't wrap my head around what my life was going to be like with these metal clunky prosthetic legs that hurt so bad to stand in. And my mom turned on the radio and turned on this country music song that I loved. And I saw my sister and my dad dancing. And I just got this energy to stand up and dance with my dad. And so we have this video of me two-stepping with my dad. And I'm 83 pounds and, you know, just very lightly stepping in my legs. But my legs were doing what I wanted them to to do. And my whole family who was there was just in shock. And in fact, in this video, you can hear my mom in the background going, oh my gosh, can you believe it? What does it feel like? You're dancing before you're walking. And I felt very empowered, but it was very uncomfortable no matter what. It was still incredibly challenging, but I did it. And I thought to myself, okay, so if I can do that, then I can walk in my sister's wedding. Because once again, I didn't want anybody to feel bad for me. I was so tired of people feeling sorry for me and and what happened to me. And so I surprised 
my sister, I hadn't yet even told her that I was going to walk in the wedding. I was in my wheelchair and all dressed up the day of her wedding. And it wasn't until I was supposed to walk down the aisle that I actually stood up out of my wheelchair and walked down the aisle. And I stood there the whole time. I was her maid of honor. I stood there the whole time with the flower girls and um, throughout the whole wedding. And I danced a little bit on and off that night in and out of my wheelchair. And I just remember thinking, okay, if I can do this, if I can do this, then I can do anything. Because this was hard. And I had to overcome a lot just to do this. So if I can do this, then I'm going to be able to walk again. And if I can walk again, then I can snowboard again. Where do you think that resolve, that confidence and tenacity comes from? Is it nature, nurture? What's the origin of of that piece of you, Amy? You know, first of all, I, I never would have imagined that I would have that type of strength or resiliency. I was always more emotional as a kid. In fact, I think my parents said to some friends when I was in the hospital, they were like, Amy can't handle this. Like she's so sensitive and she's going to be a mess. (laughs) Yeah. Like, oh God, what's going to happen here? So it's not like my parents would even say, oh, she's just always been this really like strong, resilient kid. But I think being faced with almost dying and knowing how precious life is and First of all, you know, having the choice that I had when I had that near-death experience, I chose to be here. If I wanted the easy way out, I could have taken the easy way out, but I didn't. I chose to be here knowing that life was going to be tough, knowing that I had a lot to face. And so I, I never felt like a victim. I felt like I chose to take this on. So I'm going to figure this out. And I've made a choice to focus on on what I can do versus looking backwards and, and you know, seeing what I lost, I decided to focus on what I've gained. And it, it's just kind of a choice. It, it's a choice of where I decide to put my energy and, and put my thoughts. And it's really hard when your reality is tearing you down. You know, you look in the mirror. For me, I looked in the mirror. I was 83 pounds. I was skin and bones. I didn't have my legs. I had scars from head to toe. I have all these stretch marks from when they had to fill me up with 50 pounds of water, I was no longer who I thought I was. But at the same time, I just felt so deeply in my heart that this is not going to define me. How long was it from your sister's wedding to the first time you were back on a snowboard? So my sister's wedding was in September, mid-September. And I got up on a snowboard for the first time I believe it was late February. I had no idea what it was going to feel like. And in fact, I never was concerned that I couldn't do it until I got up on the mountain. And just sitting on the lift was the first time it really hit me. What if I can't do this? Like, what does the rest of my life look like when I am so dedicated to figuring this out? But what if I can't do it? And when I stood up getting off the chairlift, it felt kind of fine. But then I went to go onto my toe edge and my ankles wouldn't bend. I totally lost control. I ended up shooting straight down the mountain going so fast. I hit this bump. I twisted in the air. I totally fell. And my goggles went one way. My beanie went the other way. And my legs still attached to my snowboard went flying down the mountain. And I was still sitting up on top of the mountain. And I was so discouraged and I thought, okay, this is obviously why you don't see people with two prosthetic legs snowboarding. But then I thought, well, if I can figure out a way to keep these detachable body parts attached to my body, if I can figure out a way to get my ankles to move the way that I need them to, then maybe I can do this again. And that is when I learned that the obstacles in our lives can only do two things. One, stop us dead in our tracks or two, force us to get creative. So in the past two decades, since that first run down the mountain, what you have accomplished is nothing short of extraordinary. And I'm going to share some of those highlights. And then I want to talk about another unexpected turn that happened to you over a year ago, actually, when we first emailed about doing this interview. But in those two years, you became one of the top Paralympic snowboarders in the world. 
you've been in a video with Madonna. You were a massive sensation on Dancing with the Stars. You started a foundation. You wrote a New York Times bestselling book. You've toured the country with Oprah. You're a model. You have a clothing line. And you're the star of a Super Bowl commercial, to name a few. So clearly, total underachiever. <laughs> but all of that, I mean, that that vision that I'm going to do something, not only do something with my life, but do something big and do something meaningful. And as you said, with resilience and persevering, accomplished all of that and more. So a little over a year ago, you had a unexpected turn. Share with me what happened to your body. So last year, I was healthy, strong at the peak of everything. I had just won two more medals in the Paralympic Games, in my second Paralympic Games. I was actually snowboarding better than ever. And then when it came to speaking, traveling the world and speaking, I speak to corporations all across the world. I was booked and busy and loving my career and everything I was doing. And in fact, I was doing a speech in Vegas. And as I was standing on stage, I realized that I had this cramp in my left calf. Well, I didn't think too much of it. Having prosthetic legs for 20 years, you kind of get used to some aches and pains. But about three days later, I was in the emergency room in Denver and I was diagnosed with a massive blood clot from my hip down every artery of my left leg. So this was major. Every single artery of my left leg was clotted. And I knew how serious it was. I knew right away that my life had flipped upside down once again. And I knew that I would be fighting to walk again. What did the doctors originally tell you? Yeah. So after I was diagnosed with this blood clot, my initial thought was, well, the doctors can fix this, right? But instead, they came in and basically said, there's nothing we can do. They said, because you're an amputee, they basically looked at me like I was already damaged. And it did not matter what I've done. You know, we were showing them pictures of, no, this is me. This is me last week. Last week, I was snowboarding six hours a day. This is me on Dancing with the Stars. Like, this is who I am. This is what I need to get back to. So I need you to help me get back there. And they were saying, we just can't do it. Well, eventually, I did not give up and begged them to please rethink and please, can we go in and just see if there's anything we can do? And so... You know, the option was to amputate my leg above the knee or somehow just, you know, see how well I do like this. And actually, my husband had asked one of the doctors, like, so if she doesn't, you know, amputate her leg, so what's life like? And he, and he said, well, you know, she may be able to walk to the mailbox and get the mail and, you know, maybe start pushing it a little bit from there. And and, and I, I just thought, no, or, there's no way. And so when they left the room, I cried so hard. My husband's never seen me like that in my life. And I don't think I've ever felt that way in my life, even when I was 19 years old and lost my legs. I cried from the deepest part of my soul. I mean, I wailed so loud that the nurses had to come in and give me medication to calm me down because it's just the worst news that I expected. And, I, and I've always expected the doctors to be able to help me. And so what they did is a few days later, they did decide to go in just to see what was going on. So they did a surgery where they went in, they were able to see that the blood clot from my knee to my hip was fresh and they were able to pull that out of the artery, but they couldn't pull out anything from the knee down. The challenging thing with blood clots is the longer they're in there, the less they can do to help you. And I'm talking just days. They say if a blood clot's in there for a week, it starts to turn to concrete and they can't remove it. So I knew that I needed to get somebody in my leg to help me just over the next few days. I ended up deciding to go back in to see my surgeon the following Monday. And he happened to not 
be there. I didn't expect him to do anything. He had already told me he wasn't going to do anything to help me. But his partner happened to be there. And the front desk lady said, well, you know, your doctor's not here. Do you want to see his partner? And I said, absolutely. I'll see anybody I can. So I went in and saw this amazing doctor. His name's Dr. Cooper. And he was an older man and he took one look at me and he said, what am I going to do with you? And just the minute he said that, I thought, oh, thank God he's willing to do something. And he did the the ultrasound. He showed that my leg was completely blocked from the knee down. And he said, well, there is one thing we can do. There's definitely risks involved, but he said, you remind me of my daughters. And if any of them were in this situation, I would do everything I could to save their leg as well. And so he rushed me into another surgery, which was actually a two-day procedure. So he did one kind of surgery one day where he put these catheters down my leg and dripped this clot-busting medication that breaks up the clot. And it was the most painful experience of my life, just 48 hours of just moaning and constant pain. And and then the next day he, he went in and and tried to just open up every artery he could and kind of manually clean things up and see what he could do. And because of that, he was able to clear out the arteries in my leg. There was one little blockage that he couldn't touch below the knee, but I'm so grateful. And I'll tell you, I've had these angels come into my life throughout my life, and I'm so grateful, but a lot of it has come from realizing that I have to be my own advocate. Nobody cares about you as much as you care about you. Nobody cares about your life as much as you care about your life. So I had to knock down doors to get help and get support and just absolutely not give up. And I think I put the same energy into this that I did Dancing with the Stars, that I did the Paralympic Games, that I did even when I started speaking and and failing. It was like, I have got to figure this out and I am obsessed and laser focused with finding the answer. And luckily we did. And so the majority of this year was a fight to save my leg and really a fight to save hope and my own sanity. (laughs) And you would think that even with everything I went through 20 years ago, that this would maybe be easier for me, but it wasn't. It was incredibly difficult. But now being on the other side of it, I have learned so much. Once again, this year, through every challenge I've gone through, I've learned so much about what matters most in my life, what little, you know, mind games or mental techniques that I need to put into play to keep moving forward. And just, you know, I've just once again learned resiliency and and grateful that I've had that. You said very eloquently, and it made a lot of sense to me that, you know, 20 years ago, you were fighting for your life. And this last year, you fought for your quality of life. Yeah. And you also said it was the first time you felt disabled. And the juxtaposition of, you know, weeks before, four to six hours a day, snowboarding, traveling the world, that you had to rely on people in a way that you didn't before. How did you experience that? The loss of independence and the life, the big life you were living. Right. Um, That was probably the hardest part. It was incredibly surreal to be in the situation where just weeks before I was living my best life. And I spent 20 years to get to where I was at. And suddenly it felt like the rug was just pulled out from under me. And I had moments where I really did lose hope, especially when the doctors were saying, you damaged your artery. This is major. We can't help you. We can't do anything. And It was the first time in my life that I felt disabled. I had to rely on my husband for everything. My mom lived with us for a couple of months. I mean, I couldn't even, you know, move my body. My leg after these surgeries was huge and swollen and I was terrified. (laughs) I cried every night and all of a sudden your worst fears creep up at night and every night, really, for three months last year, I would cry because I would feel like 
the sudden just doom of this is the rest of my life. What if this is the rest of my life? And then I'd pull myself together and I thought, I got to keep going. I mean, I have to I have to pull on some of the stuff that I learned 20 years ago. In fact, 20 years ago, I asked myself this question and I asked myself the same question when all of this happened, which was, okay, if my life was a book and I was the author, how would I want my story to go? How would this story end? And 20 years ago, I visualized myself snowboarding again, helping other people, you know, I couldn't change my situation, but I saw myself living a good life using everything I learned along the way to help others as well. And so I had to go back to that this time and ask myself the same question. And I visualized the same thing as far as, well, I'll just come up with a plan B. If I can't speak on stage, I'll speak virtually online. If I can't travel, then we'll enjoy where we live. You know, I just started to create another outcome to all of this. And I think that's what's helped to pull me through some of those darkest days. You have, throughout your journey, become high profile. You're an influencer. Hundreds of thousands of people follow you and your life on social media. And I want to talk about vulnerability and your shift and how you shared yourself or how you share yourself with people. Because the Amy Purdy that was celebrated on stages and, you know, around the world. It was, it was optimism and hope and triumph. And there was a shift in you and how you shared. And I follow you on Instagram and I'll be completely honest. There would be day, you know, we all have our self-loathing days and I would see some picture of you and I'd be like, God, she's drop dead gorgeous, perfect body. She's in Rio. <laughs> I feel, you know, 10 pounds overweight and I'm stuck in a carpool line. <laughs> and so you really had this beautiful life and you began to share your pain. You began to share yeah. pictures of you with no makeup, lying in a bed with your eyes swollen because you had clearly been crying. And I don't know you personally, you know, we've been in touch somewhat, but it made me feel more connected to you in a sense that there was a bravery and vulnerability and sharing that piece of yourself. How did that feel? Well, at first, I really appreciate you sharing that. It's just, I knew right away, I started to share the in-between moments, not this, you know, beautiful photo of an outcome that happened, but the journey along the way or the cry that I had in the bathtub the night before and this, the fears that were going through my mind and the anxiety that I was feeling and the amount of people who reached out to me. It was just so, it, it meant so much to me. As humans, we connect by showing our weaknesses, because that's something we all experience. Not everybody's going to experience success, but something we all experience every single day is being vulnerable and and feeling not good enough and feeling scared and having anxiety. And I started to realize too, other people that I was following on social media no longer spoke to me. You know, these people who had these beautiful photos and these beautiful travel photos and these beautiful bodies, I wanted nothing to do with it. I was like, are you kidding me? This is doing nothing for me. I actually deleted, you know, half of my people that I follow on Instagram. What I wanted to hear is people who went through hell and back. I wanted to hear stories of survival. I wanted to hear stories of how somebody did something and it was a miracle that they healed or survived. That's the kind of stuff that I wanted to hear. And so I decided that I was going to share that part of my journey as well, because I know there's other people out there who need to see this too. I loved seeing that piece of you, Amy, and, and I'm grateful that you had the courage to share with everyone. So thank you for that. I want to talk about where you are today. And I know you had a big milestone. I believe it was, it, we're recording this in April during the quarantine and the pandemic. And it was February that you took your first step, <laughs> shared it widely with Good Morning America. And here we are. My presumption is that the last year was very isolating for you 
and clearly very difficult for you. And so to be coming out, your rebirth in a sense, how have you experienced this? So (laughs) this last year, I really call quarantine number one, which was this happened last February And it took an entire year of being home to get to the point of where I could put my prosthetic on and take my first steps. Um, Just getting comfortable walking again. And then we get hit with this coronavirus and now we're on quarantine too. And so for me, I mean, I've got a lot of experience being here, (laughs) being isolated, feeling disconnected from the rest of the world, seeing that the rest of the world is going through a lot of what I went through this past year, maybe in a little bit of a different way, but you know, we're all going through change, challenge, uncertainty, anxiety, feeling completely out of control of the situation, fearful that we lost everything that we worked so hard for. And what is your advice to people at this moment in time? You know, I've really been thinking about this a lot lately because I know that so many people are going through similar challenges right now and just we're all uncertain of the future. And so when I look back on my life, I think of these three things. The first one is just really getting clear on who you are and on your why and visualizing yourself your best self. Really, like I wouldn't be where I'm at today if I didn't visualize myself as my best self. And what did that look like? And I had to believe that it was possible. And so get really clear on who you are and why it is you want to do what it is that you want to do. And I think the second thing is, you know, my challenges have really forced me to get creative and find a way. So I think with everything we're facing today, like getting creative and doing things a little bit differently than we had to do it before and trying to find a way, you know, you can't get through an obstacle, but how do you get around it or get over it or get creative? How do you use it? How do you push off of that obstacle so that you can go further in your life so that you don't just survive this challenge, but you thrive through it? And I think the last thing is really committing to whatever it is you want to be and who you believe you are and the goals that you set, commit before you're confident. Commit before you even know if it's possible. Commit yourself to it and figure out a way and tell everybody around you what you're going to do. I totally believe in the power of intention. So you can't just say, I hope to do this in my life. I want to do this. I want to write a book or I hope to snowboard someday or I hope to do this or that. You have to totally declare it and you have to commit to it. You have to say, this is what I am doing. I am writing a book right now, even if you haven't begun. (laughs) I am doing this. And I think by declaring it and totally committing to it, it doesn't matter what challenges you're facing. You will find a way to make it happen. How would you describe your relationship with your body today? I never could have imagined that I'd be as strong physically as I ended up being. And so I'm very proud of where I came from and where I've gone. But then now this year, of course, to be knocked back down completely and I haven't walked fully in a year. So my legs are not in shape at all. I can easily look in the mirror and just feel really insecure and worried, but worried if I'm ever going to be how I used to be. But what this year really taught me is grace. Just being gentle with myself. I remember looking in the mirror and just my initial thought was, oh my God, I can't believe what's happened to me. Like I have the scar and I'm skin and bones and where'd my muscle go? And I have this massive bruise, massive bruise. And, And I thought, hold on, Like, do the opposite of what you're doing right now. (laughs) Like, think about how strong this body is for getting you through everything you've gone through. Think about you're going through this a second time, a second time, major surgeries, and your body has gotten through. And look at that amazing scar that your skin was able to 
sew itself back up together, that your body was made to do that, that all the little things that have to come into play did. What a miracle that is. It's been really refreshing, to be honest, to just um, truly accept where I'm at, even when I'm not, you know, on the top of mountains or at my strongest. So we talked briefly about your husband, Daniel. How has the past year changed your relationship with him? I imagine, you know, this independent jet-setting wife, and it's been a very different dynamic between the two of you. We talk a lot about caretaking and the impact that has on relationships. So I'm curious how your relationship has changed and has grown over the past year. Yeah. I mean, really, challenges definitely make you stronger. And I think that's happened for Daniel and I. Something that I I always used to feel like was he wasn't there when I went through everything 20 years ago. He only really saw me at my best and when I was strong and healthy again. And so this is the first time that he's really seen me fearful, have anxiety, be uncertain, you know, going through all these surgeries. And he's really stepped up in the most beautiful way. I think, you know, he's stepped in where I've needed him most. So he's been, of course, just loving and by my side. And I've been so grateful for that. But he he was cooking, especially early on in this last year. He was cooking every night. He started you know, cleaning the house and taking care of things and vacuuming every morning and making sure everything was set and then taking me to all my doctor's appointments. I think that I always wanted to prove my independence and I was able to do that. But then now to have to rely on somebody, that was hard for me to just let those walls down and to let somebody take care of me in that way. I think we've grown stronger because of that, because we've seen these other sides of each other. And and he's still there, you know, and in the past, being somebody that was such a go-getter, there would be times that I kind of wished that he was like that as well. Like he, I wished at times that he met me on that same level of energy and drive to create new projects or get things done. And yet now I really appreciate the balance that he brings, which is this loving, tender human that has been here for me through the good, through the bad. And he balances me out so beautifully. And I think that's why it works. And and I hope that, you know, he can say the same about me. <laughs> How would you say you are different than the person you were a year and a half ago? Gosh. I think I'm much more of a whole person in, in the sense that I've experienced that much more life. I always felt like I experienced the depths of life, but I've gone even deeper this year because this is the first time that I've dealt with moments of anxiety and hopelessness, like major anxiety. And it's taught me a lot about myself and how I want to live my life, but also how I want to impact the lives of others. And I think I'm a lot more, I just have a lot more grace with myself now than what I had before. In the past, I had these big accomplishments that I was always chasing. And I think right now I still have these dreams and goals that I'm working towards, but I also look at the simple things as the big things like Right now, I just want to be able to walk my dog. We got a puppy last year and my husband walks him twice a day and I actually haven't been able to walk him. And I can't wait till that day. Like that's actually my biggest goal right now is just to walk my dog with my husband. And so it's really, I'm a much softer version of myself and much more self-accepting. And I I hope I can connect with others even better because of that. In the meantime, I know you were scheduled to carry the torch this summer at the Paralympic Games, and they've been rescheduled for 2021. So I cannot wait to watch you, Amy, out in the world again, carrying that torch. Well, thank you. You know, this whole uh, situation this year bought me some time, <laughs> which is nice. I was supposed to carry the torch 
last month and now I'll be carrying it next year and I'm just starting to walk again. So it does buy me a little bit of time to be able to get strong and walk and run again. And I also know that if I'm not running like I was before, I'll figure out a way because that's how I've always done it. So if I have to get creative and figure out a way, no matter what, I'll be carrying that torch. Amy Purdy, you are awesome. I love that we were able to reconnect uh, after more than a decade. And I'm really excited to share our conversation with everyone. Kimmy, thank you so much. Thank you. It was was my honor. We're going to do a very quick thing called rapid fire. And then we're done. You ready? I'm guarantee you've done this. <laughs> I'm always like, oh God, what's going to come in? What you, what's going to come out of my mouth? Okay. Yes. Ready. Biggest vice. My biggest vice I would say are donuts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I love donuts. I love sweets. Me too. Best way to spend a Friday night. Best way to spend a Friday night, cooking with my husband, having a glass of wine, and watching one of our favorite, you know, Netflix TV shows, we we have a lot of fun with that. Favorite Netflix show? Outlander. Have you seen it? No. It's amazing. I will. <laughs> favorite childhood cereal? Oh, gosh. I used to love Kicks. I don't think they make them anymore. Favorite city? Oh, that's a good one. I'm going to say just off the top of my head right now, Barcelona. I traveled there right before this virus hit and fell in love with it. My biggest regret. Oh my gosh. I think that's a hard one because I do feel like I have made friends with some of my biggest challenges in my life. I'm not sure right off the top of my head if I have huge regrets because I do feel like every mistake I've ever made has taught me something. I love that. Good answer. (laughs) Where can we find you and follow everything that you are up to? So I think the best spot to follow me is probably on Instagram. I'm a visual person. I really enjoy photography as well. So I really enjoy putting out photos and also following other people who have, you know, interesting photos. So I find myself on Instagram probably more than any other social media site and also my website, amypurdy.com, and you can sign up for my emails there as well. I try to send out emails that encourage people, especially through the times that we're living in right now, and that share different stories of struggle and resiliency and adversity. I think those are probably the two best spots that you can find me. Great. And we'll link to all of that in the show notes, including your book. Great. Thank you, Amy Purdy. I cannot wait to watch you be Amy 3.0 and see all the extraordinary things you are yet to do in this world. Thank you so much, Kimmy. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to share my story. Today's episode supports Adaptive Action Sports. This is the charity that Amy founded with her husband. They are a nonprofit organization that helps people with permanent disabilities get involved in action sports. They break down barriers so everyone from young kids to adults and veterans can experience the joy, confidence, and fun that comes with sports like skateboarding and snowboarding. Thank you to Amy and Daniel for introducing us to Adaptive Action Sports. Amy, we are all sending healing thoughts and prayers and cannot wait to see what the next 20 years has in store for you. As always, thank you for listening and a quick reminder to be grateful and dream big. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.